0: Good morning, let's just pray again. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity we have now to draw before you and to read your word. Lord, in your sovereign power, we pray that you might reveal the truth of it to us now. Give us open ears, give us warm hearts and speak your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I must confess that when I first sat down to study this passage a few weeks ago, I was completely baffled by it. And as you can imagine, it it didn't do much to bolster my confidence when the first resource I turned to for assistance began with a quote from one commentator who said, we do not see how this chapter could be used in a sermon. (laughs) Alas, casting such pessimism aside, I want to start with a story full of hope. Now, the lady on the left of your screen is Gladys Kenny. She is 97 years old. And for the last 67 years, she has been an ardent Leicester City fan. Despite enduring many more downs than ups during this period, including the agony of relegation nine times over, she's always remained a faithful supporter. And this year, her faithfulness was finally rewarded. Not only with Leicester winning the Premier League title, but also the opportunity to present the trophy itself to her beloved team at the King Power Stadium. To put it simply, Daniel 11 is all about remaining faithful in turbulent times, much like dear old Gladys. Now, to understand Daniel 11, we need to appreciate where it sits in the book. Chapters 10 to 12 Form a single vision of simultaneous earthly and heavenly conflict stretching right from Daniel's day until the end of time. Now, we don't have time this morning to cover the vision in chapter 10, but it is worth noting the impact that it had on Daniel. So in chapter 10, verse 8, we're told he had no strength left. His face turned deathly pale. Then in verse 10, we read of Daniel trembling on his hands and knees. In verse 15, he's left speechless or mute as it sometimes rendered. In verse 16, he's overcome with anguish and feels very weak. And in verse 17, Daniel's strength is gone. He can hardly breathe. You see, this was no daydream for Daniel. What he saw in the vision profoundly affected him. And this is where we pick up in verse one of chapter 11, which places Daniel in the first year of Darius the Mede, which was 539 B.C. And the year in which a decree allowing the Jews to return from exile to their own land was issued. So let's open Daniel 11 together and read Just verses 2 to 4. Daniel 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he rules. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So I hope you've got your history hats on. Verse two tells us that three more Persian kings will follow Darius, but the fourth, a guy called King Xerxes, who we meet elsewhere in the book of Esther, will be more powerful than all of the others. Now to help us understand the extent of his power, This map shows us the boundaries of the Persian Empire at its pinnacle. It extends right to the border of Greece all the way across to the border of modern-day India. And as a show of his wealth and strength, we are told this king, Xerxes, will declare war on Greece, a venture that history tells us Ended in Xerxes' defeat at the Battle of Salamis. Now, the narrative moves quickly on, jumping forward almost a century, and the focus shifts abruptly from the Persian Empire in verse 3. We read, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now, the mighty king referred to here is Alexander the Great of Macedon, which is in northern Greece. Alexander the Great is a familiar historical character, someone we've already encountered, in fact, in the book of Daniel. He's first alluded to right back in chapter 7 as a third of four beasts, a leopard with four heads and four wings. And he then pops up again in chapter 8 as the male goat who comes from the West to destroy the ram, which represents the Persian Empire. And, just as being prophesied, having ascended to the throne, Alexander the Great set about conquering the Persian Empire with incredible speed. Such that, within 12 years, he had taken virtually all of the former territory of Persia, and now govern the largest kingdom ever known to man. But we're not left to consider this mighty king for long. In verse 4, the vision moves quickly to the end of Alexander's reign, following his death in 323 BC. Look at verse 4 with me. As soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom should be plucked up and go to others besides these. So remember, we have the leopard, four heads, four wings, and we have the four winds of heaven. What's this all about? Well, following their father's death, Alexander's two sons initially took over the empire. But after serious internal struggles, culminating in their assassination, the empire was divided into four parts under four of Alexander's generals. And of these kingdoms, two became dominant. The northern kingdom, which is Syria, under Seleucus, and the southern kingdom, Egypt, under Ptolemy. And it's this ongoing conflict between north and south which dominates much of the rest of the chapter. With me? Of course you are. Good. Let's move on to the next section. You'll be glad to hear that we aren't going to work through verses 5 to 20 in great detail, but they span a period of over 150 years and they chart the ongoing conflict between the northern and southern kingdoms. As with all good ancient history, these years are filled with marriage alliances, divorce, betrayal, poison, assassination, and relentless military campaigns. We simply don't have time to cover it all this morning, but the clear correlation with then-future, now-historical events Is clear. If you get the opportunity, I would strongly encourage you to work through these verses and see how accurately they map to historical events as documented by secular historians. But what relevance does this have to Daniel and his compatriots? Well, sandwiched directly between the north and the southern kingdoms sits Palestine, the home of God's covenant people, and the territory that was repeatedly contested between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires. As the events of verses 5 to 20 unfold, Palestine will be caught up right in the thick of it. This reality is brought sharply into view in verse 16, which, if you look at it, says, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land that is Palestine with destruction in his hand. As we've already mentioned, Judah was about to be released from exile, but this vision serves as a forewarning to Daniel and his compatriots that they would not be truly free. Rather, for centuries to come, they would be subject to the prevailing forces of the day. And that's how things continue until, in verse 21, we encounter another character, a contemptible person, it says, who has already made an appearance in the book of Daniel. His name is Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is the little horn described in chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. As verse 21 alludes to, he rose to power by taking the throne which actually belonged to his nephew, Demetrius, who was imprisoned in Rome. And he established himself through bribery and flattery and set about continuing in the footsteps of his ancestors by launching an attack on Egypt, now under Ptolemy sixth. His military campaign is successful, but his subsequent ploy to manipulate a newly formed alliance with Ptolemy for his own gain comes to nothing. And as a result, Antiochus Epiphany sets out to return to his own kingdom in the north. And this is where we pick things up in verse 28. So if you'll look together with me at verse 28, Alistair will kindly read these verses for us. Thank you, Alistair. So in these verses, the true colours of Antiochus' epiphanies become clear. On his way home, heading north, he stops in Palestine, only to find an insurrection in full swing. Rumours of his death have led to an uprising with murder of the puppet high priest and his supporters. Antiochus responds with unbridled ruthlessness. The book of Maccabees tells us that the temple was plundered and 80,000 men, women and children were killed. Following a further unsuccessful foray into Egypt, Antiochus vents his anger on God's people once more. His forces enter and desecrate the temple stopping the regular burnt offerings ordained by God, setting up an altar in the temple to Zeus, and celebrating pagan rites, including the sacrifice of pigs on the altar of burnt offering. This is the abomination of desolation in verse 31. Some of the Jews are won over by Antiochus and desert the faith. But as we see in verse 32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Those who do stand up to Antiochus suffer greatly. As verse 33 puts it, by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, but not in vain. Through this fierce persecution, God's covenant people, Are refined and purified and ultimately prove faithful. So that was an absolute whistle stop tour through the first 35 verses of Daniel 11. And now that we completely understand the events outlined in these verses, let's move on to what we can learn from them. Firstly, then, standing proudly against God. Twice in this passage, there is a phrase which aptly captures the attitudes of all of these kings. We read in verse 3 and in verse 16, the king shall do as he wills. The king shall do as he wills. You see, these kings had no regard for God's rule or reign over their lives. But rather, they did exactly as they pleased, indulging their selfish desires, expanding their earthly empires and enhancing their worldly prestige. This comes through strikingly when you read the chapter from beginning to end in one sitting. Strength, might, power, dominion and authority appear 14 times in the first 35 verses. Likewise, there are 15 explicit references to armies, multitudes, forces, troops and war. The same attitude that the kings showed, the attitude of doing as they pleased, can be traced all the way back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve chose to go their own way rather than obeying God's commands. Why? Because they were enticed by the serpent's lie that they would become like God. And that is exactly what's happening here. These kings set themselves up as gods with absolute authority over their kingdoms, And they used their power to do unspeakable things in order to further their own ends. And as verse 27 puts it, their hearts were bent on doing evil. It's easy from this vantage point on the chapter to stand in judgment. But isn't this exactly what we have all done in our own lives? Each and every one of us has rejected God and decided to run life our own way. And this rebellious, self-sufficient attitude is what the Bible calls sin. And the inevitable effect of sin in our lives is the unbridled pursuit of what makes us feel good and look good instead of what pleases God and honours him. To put it another way, when we choose our way, over God's way, we promote our glory over God's glory. And this inversion of priorities produces resentment in our hearts towards anything that threatens or detracts from our perceived glory. And there's no better illustration of this than Antiochus Epiphanes, who repeatedly vents his anger at God's people with ever-increasing arrogance and ferocity because they refused to obey him and worship Zeus. And yet, just as striking as the self-serving authority of these kings is the fleeting transience of their power. You see, for all of their apparent might and strength, each and every one of these kings ultimately met the same end. This sentiment is captured in verse 24, which, if you see, says of Antiochus, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Only for a time. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, Daniel's vision reveals the perennial instability of the kingdoms of the earth. Evil is always unstable. Because it is rooted in our following our own wills instead of God's will. God's will alone is stable and enduring. It alone will ultimately come to pass. God's will alone is stable and enduring. It alone will ultimately come to pass. And that leads us on nicely to our second point. Standing firmly for God if we'd have had the chance to read it through in its entirety, you might have noticed that in the first 31 verses, God is not mentioned once. And yet his fingerprints can be clearly seen throughout the chapter. Just in the same way as we are reminded on two occasions that the king will do as he wills, another phrase pointing to God's ultimate authority appears three times. So in verses 27, 29, and 35, there are references to the appointed time. Let's look at them together. So verse 27. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Now look at verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. And then verse 35, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Reading through this chapter, there is a deliberately inescapable sense that events are unfolding according to God's timeline. And nothing that these mighty kings do will alter that. Indeed, the very fact that these events are foretold in such detail is testament to God's sovereign power over the events of history. As we've been learning throughout the book of Daniel, and as we are reminded in Proverbs 16, verse 9, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. These kings were no different. And this truth is incredibly important as we look to the response of God's people in the face of adversity in this chapter. You see, at the height of their persecution, we are told in verse 32 that the people who know their God, shall stand firm and take action. And My question is this. What was it about the people of God that they knew about God that empowered them to stand firm? What did they know about God that enabled them to stand firm? Well, was it not their underlying and unshakable confidence in the sovereignty of God? Was it not that they maintained an eternal perspective, committing themselves to the righteous one who judges justly and trusting that their present afflictions would pale into insignificance in the face of eternal glory to come? And what struck me as I studied this passage was if God's people then stood firm, because of confidence in what were veiled promises in the Old Testament, how much more should we stand firm in the light of the confidence that we now have through the finished work of Christ? Listen to this quote. The gospel enables us to deal with difficult momentary experiences, because it assures us of the permanence of God's promises. When we are momentarily afflicted, we are certain that we will not be crushed because Jesus was crushed on our behalf. When we are persecuted, we know that God will not forsake us because Jesus was forsaken in our place. And when we experience death, we need not fear. For we know that we will experience resurrection life because Jesus bore the penalty of death on our behalf. As much as the, God's people in Daniel had cause for confidence, how much more confidence should we have? And what glorious motivation to stand firmly for God? Alistair is now going to read to us the final verses of the chapter. So we've called this section The Last Stand. And a Last Stand is, as Wikipedia kindly informs us, a general military situation in which a body of troops holds a defensive position in the face of overwhelming odds. Famous battles where there are Last Stand include Waterloo and Bighorn. And this is a situation that the people of God find themselves in as we enter into these final verses. Now in verse 36, there is a subtle shift of focus. You're going to have to trust me on this one, because I don't have the time to explain uh, and justify that that's the case. But it's broadly accepted that Antiochus Epiphanes is no longer in view, but rather the end times, and more specifically, the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist is a figure who appears in different guises elsewhere in the New Testament as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 and the first beast in Revelation 13. And the name Antichrist tells you most of what you need to know about him. He is a powerful figure who will set himself up against and in place of God. Now, returning to Daniel 11, we understand more of the character of the Antichrist. He is, in essence, like Antiochus Epiphanes on steroids, the ultimate expression of the evil which preceded him. And this caricature is borne out in the verses we've just read together. Did you notice that we hear echoes of the first 35 verses? Look at verse 36. It opens with the now familiar phrase, and the king shall do as he wills. We've heard that before, haven't we? Similarly, we see the same obsessional focus on authority and military dominance. In verse 38, we're told he shall honour the God of fortresses. And again, in verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses. And then verses 40 to 44 form a chilling account of his destructive and murderous path through the nations, sparing only the sworn enemies of the people of God, Edom, Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites in verse 41. Furthermore, the Antichrist is characterized by that self-same desire to exalt himself, rather than glorify God. And he does so to unprecedented levels. Look again at verse 36. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of God. You see, the Antichrist does nothing in hearts. He is completely dedicated to self-glorification and therefore unswervingly committed to the decimation of God's people and the denigration of God's name. But just as hope seems lost, we come to the end of verse 45, where we see that the Antichrist shares not only the same characteristics as his predecessors, but also the same fate. Look at the verse with me, verse 45, the second half. Yet, emphatically, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. You see, for all of his might, his power and his self-attested glory, this figure is simply blown away by Christ swept away like a toy soldier. T.S. Eliot captures it perfectly in his poem, The Hollow Men. This is the way the Antichrist ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Such is the power and the might and the majesty of the God that we adore. And what motivation to stand firm, whatever the devil may throw at us in view of what is to come in the end. So, we have thought of the characteristics and the fate of those who stand proudly against God. The cause that we have to stand firmly for God in the face of persecution and the way in which events will unfold at the end of time, including the unequivocal defeat of the Antichrist by our glorious Saviour, the risen Christ. And I just want to leave you now with these words from Romans chapter 8 ringing in our ears. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. Our Lord, let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we come before you through the triumphant power of our precious Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in his victory on Calvary's tree, a victory over sin over death, over Satan. And we thank you that one day that victory will be consummated once and for all. And we will stand before you and worship you forever. But until that day comes, Lord, we ask that you would help us to remain faithful in turbulent times. That you would help us to stand firmly for God in the knowledge of all that your precious son has done for us and won for us. And we pray these things in his precious, mighty and all-worthy name. Amen.